Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Let's start with yesterday, no, Saturday. Can you believe it? Donald Trump launched his 2020 campaign for re-election. He's only been president for uh, four weeks now. Already he is tired of the White House, sick of the White House. Reports are that he feels very lonely there. He doesn't like it. He gets headaches. He can't wait to get out of the White House for the weekends. And he doesn't want anything to do with governing, solving problems, getting things done. The reason we elected him, we didn't, I didn't, you didn't, but some people did, is to govern. He has no interest in governing what he really likes, and he got back at it Saturday. What he really gets off on is soaking up in the adulation of the crowds, and so he calls a big campaign rally, which you and I paid for, by the way. You know, his campaign rallies used to be he'd roll up in the Trump plane, get off the Trump plane, stand in front of it, and give a big campaign speech. All right? That was fine. Now, I got a problem with this. I hope you do, too. Now he rolls up on Air Force One, comes off, which we're paying for, comes off Air Force One with all the hyped-up patriotic campaign music, stands in front of it with the presidential seal, and gives a campaign speech, and that's exactly what it was. At the Boeing plant on Thursday, oh no, also on Friday, rather Friday, and at Melbourne, Florida, uh, Saturday afternoon, a big campaign rally. Uh, so that's what that's what he likes. And by the way, uh, I, you know, they're bragging about the size of the crowd. I, I just got to say before we get to some of the outrageous things he said, okay, there were... 9,000 people there. You know what? That's not such a big deal. I don't care what they say. That's Bernie's. Look, here's the president of the United States with all this advanced publicity. First big campaign rally of his presidency. Already talking about 2020. Air Force One. They got days to build this crowd. 9,000 people turned out. You know, that's like one-third of Bernie Sanders' crowds. Jane Sanders would have got a bigger crowd than 9,000 people. I mean, come on. Let's be realistic, right? So anyhow, he gets out there, and you know what? He gave the same—it was just like it was, the old campaign speech. What did he do? He bragged about the size of the crowd. He talked about how great he is. He made all these same promises he made during his campaign. 
It was like Groundhog Day. And, of course, he attacked the media. Here, Donald Trump on, this is from the rally, on health care. What are we going to do? Our plan will be much better health care at a much lower cost, okay? What? I mean, come on. I mean, how many times can he say it and people still believe it? Also, he said, of course, he was going to repeal Obamacare on day one. He has, hasn't done it. They didn't do it. This is a, You can go back month after month after month during the campaign. He would make the same promise. Uh, and you can't do it. Look, Republicans, we've said that so many times. If they had a better plan, they would have come up with it. They had seven years, uh, and they did not. On immigration, oh, yeah, we're going to keep those bad people out of this country. And I listen to these judges talk and talk and talk. So unfair. So we'll be doing something over the next couple of days. We don't give up. We never give up. Yeah. So he rolled out his immigration ban, his Muslim ban. And what happened? It was shot down three times in the courts, uh, which at his news conference, by the way, on Thursday, he insisted with a smooth rollout. You know, look, let's face it. It was a disaster. It's not in effect because it was so badly written uh, and so hurriedly pushed out there that they just got it wrong. Uh, egg on their face, which, of course, Donald Trump would never admit because, as he said in his news conference, his administration is really a finely tuned machine, well-oiled machine. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's not what it looks like uh, to anybody else. And at the rally, of course, I, I, once again, which he did every campaign stop, right? Again, this is a replay of his campaign. He turned around, points to the media. There is the enemy. When the media lies to people, I will never, ever let them get away with it. I will do whatever I can that they don't get away with it. They have their own agenda, and their agenda is not your agenda. Yeah, there you go. In fact, the day before, he had tweeted out that the media, not, not, not just that he disagrees with the media, not just that he thinks that we treat him unfairly, but that the media, he says, is the enemy, the enemy of the American people. Uh, and he repeated that theme at his, uh, at his uh, rally, campaign rally, down there in Florida. But the, again, the difference, I think it's important to point out, the difference between this campaign rally and the other ones is that this campaign rally came at taxpayers' expense. Now, technically, I believe, at least it used to be, when President Obama or any of the other presidents would go out on a campaign, a political event, and this was strictly Boeing was a campaign speech, but he was there as president to see the rollout of the new Boeing Dreamliner. So they probably wrote that off as an official government expense. Saturday was purely, purely political. So technically, the campaign is supposed to pay half of that because he's still president of the United States. I'd like to know what even the half of that cost us to fly Air Force One from Palm Beach up to Melbourne and back with all the Social Security, with all the people on board, with all the extra protection uh, at, at the rally. Uh, 
um, expensive, expensive little jaunt for us taxpayers on top of the fact that, again, for the third weekend in a row, Donald Trump at his Mar-a-Lago resort and at his golf resort with all of those extra rooms down there needed for staff, for Secret Service, and other security, all of that at taxpayers' expense. And that money goes ka-ching into the coffers of Mar-a-Lago and then ka-ching into the pockets of Donald Trump. And, by the way, at the same time, we are paying for Secret Service protection for Eric Trump and Donnie Jr., who are running off to Dubai and opening a new golf course in Dubai. They're conducting business deals, which we and we're paying for, for their protection. This presidency is costing us taxpayers more than, and, and it's already been shown, already been reported, more than any other president in history. That's what you get when you get Donald Trump in there. The official estimate, by the way, is uh, $10 million already, just these three visits to Mar-a-Lago uh, these past three weekends. And the average for Obama yeah. per year, $12 million. For Per year. Per year, $12 yeah. Million yeah. for these yeah. types of I mean, just think about it, right? If uh, President Obama was going to play golf, what did he do? Got in the car, drove to Andrews Air Force Base, okay? Uh, he was driven there, of course, but, I mean, that's about what, Jamie, 15 miles maybe, 20 miles max? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you can imagine <laughs> a 20 mile car ride costs a hell of a lot less than flying uh, Air Force One down to uh, Mar a Lago. The White House is insisting that there's nothing to all these stories uh, about. Um, Pretty frequent uh, connections and, or, and contacts between members of the Trump campaign and then the Trump transition and now the Trump administration and officials uh, in Russia. Uh, what do members of the United States Senate think about it? Niels Lysinewski is a senior Senate reporter for Roll Call who joins us in studio. Hey, Niels, good to see you. Good to see you as well. So um, uh, the senators... Um, well, first of all, the FBI is looking into this, right? That that seems very clear. And there was the the Reuters report over the weekend seems like it and some other reports over the weekend seems like it made more clear than it had been that there there may be multiple FBI field offices looking into one sort of connection. Or I saw another. that one story that there could be as many as three different FBI investigations going on. Why? Well, what what the new things, the new question me. seems to be is or the or the newly released information seems to be or newly leaked information, maybe if we want to use that yeah. parlance, <laughs> is that there may be some odd financial transactions between people who are some way associated with Trump uh, and people who are some way associated with Putin. Uh, and so that's the. That's probably why this is so complicated. Is if this if this is in fact a financial web or not, is not exactly going to be an easy thing to sort out. All right. So first of all, one question, of course, is if the if James Comey was so quick to tell the world that they were uh, reopening an investigation on Hillary Clinton's emails, 
why won't he just fess up and say, yes, we are investigating Trump's connections to Russia? Yeah, I am not Mr. Comey, and I this is one where I wouldn't really pretend to know what he's thinking because, you know, frankly, I don't know that people knew what he was thinking prior to the election, um, and I, it's really hard to know. What, I'll, what I can tell you is that... What happened on Friday in the Capitol was rather, uh, to those of us who've been around the Capitol for a little while, rather alarming, actually. Right, so he did come. So let, let's just say we know there is an FBI investigation going on, at least one. Uh, and maybe it's got three parts. OK, so he comes to the Capitol to brief senators on Friday, correct? Yes. Behind closed doors? Behind closed doors. Senate Intelligence Committee, is that it? Yes. Okay. Yep. So it's in a secure room with the Intelligence Committee. Okay. But What did he tell them? Well, they wouldn't even admit he was there. <laughs> it was, you know, I believe your lion eyes, I believe, is an expression that gets used. Yeah, the eagles. I saw him, I literally saw him walk into this meeting room. I also saw the senators walk into this meeting room. The senators emerged from the meeting room. John Cornyn from Texas uh, and several others emerged from the meeting room saying uh, it was just a normal classified briefing. And then when people would say, well, we know that we saw Comey go in, they'd be like, he'd be like, who's Comey? I mean, it was sort <laughs> of a, it was an odd circus, which was, you know, they weren't like acknowledging even who they were meeting with. And there was a story uh, that came out from uh, Chad Pergram, who's the Fox News producer up at the Capitol, who said he basically saw Richard Burr, the Senate Intelligence chairman, darting through the tourists in the Capitol Visitor Center, basically, to get to this secure meeting room through a a path that no senator would ever in their right mind take unless they were trying to avoid all of the reporters. So... Uh, whatever it was, they didn't even want that meeting to be known to have happened. You know, it's like uh, when Donald Trump now goes to his a golf course on the weekend, um, they won't even tell reporters whether or not he's playing golf. They're across the street at the library or whatever because yes. I read all the, the press reports. Right. And they just, well, not, not only won't they say who he's playing golf with, but they will not even acknowledge that while he's there for four or five hours that he's playing golf or whether he's having meetings or taking a nap or getting a massage or playing golf. They want it, that don't even know. So this is sort of like the meeting that never took place at the Capitol. Right. With right. Comey. Right. And, 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 I... and when the senators came out, did, did, did they answer any questions about the extent of the briefing or the what they might have learned at all from no, coming? No, and no, in, in, in Mark Warner, the Democratic Demo senator ranking from, Democrat. from ranking Democrat on intelligence who's, who's from uh, Northern Virginia, um, he said that, that all I am making right now is a non, I think, I don't have his exact quote, but it was basically, I'm making a non-statement right now, and mm. then walked away. He, like, I'm not even making a statement. Right. But he went, but there was a bank of TV cameras outside the meeting, and I think he may have actually said this in earshot of the TV cameras that I am not that I am making a statement that will say nothing. All right. So um, with this information that they did not get 
from James Comey, who wasn't there at the meeting that never took place. Um, what committees in the Senate, or are any committees in the Senate, going to be looking into this Russian connection? Because if you combine the New York Times story and the Wall Street Journal story, um, there were frequent and multiple com connections during the campaign and during the transition. So are there, is there going to be a, a con congressional investigation? There is, but what I think is I think is 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 fascinating is that somewhere probably Tuesday or Wednesday last week things sort of took a an a unexpected turn in sort of how this would be done, uh, not in terms of substance but just in terms of uh, the procedure. Uh, Democrats in the Senate had been clamoring for an outside investigation or some sort of either either special select committee to be set up or something like the 9-11 commission to be set up. So had Senator McCain. And so had Senator McCain. And Senator Lindsey Graham. And, right? But what happened Tuesday— now, uh, Can I ask you about yeah. that? So a select committee would be—I uh, wasn't sure whether they meant House and Senate together on a select committee, the Democrats and Republicans together, but— but not one of the existing committees, but a special committee set up just for that purpose, right? Right. And that's been done in the past. Iran-Contra is the best example of a, of a bicameral, bicameral. Uh, committee of that it, sort. Right. It was House and yeah. Senate. Okay. So it's been done, but and, and, and there wasn't, it didn't seem like there was that much appetite among Mitch, by Mitch McConnell more than anyone right. else for yeah. it. Yeah. But what became really interesting Tuesday and Wednesday was that you started talking to Democrats on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Warner, Dianne Feinstein, Angus King, the independent from Maine who's in the Democratic caucus. <coughs> Something shifted quickly because while the Democrats are, weren't didn't stop saying they wanted a select investigation— the Democrats on the Intelligence Committee said, we're going full steam ahead and the Intelligence Committee is conducting this investigation and basically saying we don't need anything else, which sort of, to me, would be the thing that would be alarming if I were the Trump administration. Because in some sense, if the mm. Senate Intelligence Committee is going to conduct the investigation behind closed doors, now the, the sort of liberal... Trump opposition perspective on that is, is that the Intelligence Committee can bury things because they do so much work in yeah, secret. Right, right. The inverse is when the Intelligence Committee decides to actually issue a public report on something, it tends to carry more weight than if it came through something that was in the public eye all along. I mean, I could envision a scenario in which we get to a couple of months from now <laughs> And the Intelligence Committee dropped some sort of a bombshell. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by 
telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. here around the table, three enemies of the sworn enemies of the American people. Uh, Alex Seitzwald from MSNBC, uh, Evan McMorris Santoro from <laughs> Vice News, That's it. Uh, week, weeknights at 7.30 on HBO. So I want to get to this point of the media and the enemy of the people. I mean, we can laugh about it, we can ignore it, but that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty tough thing to say. Right. I mean, how do we handle it? Well, I mean, you're, if enemy of the American people means we're as bad as ISIS, right, or Al Qaeda. I mean, really? Well, I mean, um, in the it, there's a lot of just pure Washington hypocrisy going on with this, and the fact that Donald Trump is the most media focused president we ha- maybe have ever had. The man watches cable news Absolutely. constantly. He, I mean. The and, Sweden thing, which I we was going to joke about, the Sweden thing was exa- was a segment was from Tucker Carlson's Tucker, Tucker show, show on Fox yeah. night before. Yeah. So, so the idea that this guy is like, oh, the media is the enemy of the people. This is a guy who used to call the press, uh, or allegedly, I you know, I don't know if you ever admitted to this, but he used to call the press as uh, his own spokesperson to get stories planted about himself. He understands the media and he likes it. I mean, he, he goes on all the time. So I mean, it's very was, weird. And he was created by it. You know, during the primary, the coverage that everybody gave him. Well, really? and he, and it literally, I mean, Jeff Zucker admitted that, that CNN did very, very well. And, I mean, all the networks did. So did Phil. Uh, sorry, forget your boss's last Griffin, name. Griffin, yeah. Griffin. They all admitted they the ratings went. The more they covered him, the better the ratings were. Which is really important context to understand, I think, why he's doing this. Uh Trump needs an enemy. He needs a foil to run against. He had Hillary Clinton during the campaign. He had little Marco and, you know, Lion or low energy Jeb and Lion Ted during the primary. And now <laughs> he, Marco, I forgot about that. Yeah, oh, he's, he, he's been he's been lost. He's been adrift uh, in the White House. And now so he's now. finally found finding his his kismet uh, his, uh, in the media. And I think th- it's but it's I mean, it's political. It's not. It's there, there's not substantive criticism here. I mean, Obama would get frustrated with the media, but it was always because it weren't wasn't covering something that he wanted them to cover. It was too poli- political focus, not policy enough focus. This is purely a posture that Trump has assumed because I think he is you know offended by the coverage, but I think it's also that he needs something his, to slough off responsibility and say this right. is the reason why my agenda isn't getting passed. But his tweets. So media. his tweets have been have covered the people's attack. Uh, yeah, the New York Times, but also the Wall Street Journal and uh, CNN, of course, and ABC, CBS, and NBC. Uh, it's only Fox News. Fox and Friends is the most honest morning show in the country, in, not even Morning Joe. Uh, so, I mean, Vice News Tonight on HBO, not failing. Vice News Tonight on HBO. Didn't say anything about that. Did, has he attacked PM, you yet? HBO. No, uh, oh. not yet. Um, uh, no, I think, but your point is well taken on this, which is that, like, the, the, it. Part of this, you know, what Alex is talking about too, is part of this is this idea that it 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 helps a guy like Trump, and actually a lot of politicians would be helped by this, to have your chosen media sort of outlets for your chosen supporters. And a lot of what happens with Trump is negative stories come out that are well reported. Very rarely do they sort of poke an actual factual hole in these stories oh, that get right. Oh, I mean, the right. best exactly. we have so far is just kind of like back and forth of whether or not he had a bathrobe, right? But a lot of the other stories have been. Um, you and know, then, I mean, they're really popular. The Flynn thing, the lead up to the, that. 
But the Martin Luther King uh, bus, that hurt us all, I'm afraid. And Zeke Miller, we love him. He's a good friend okay. of all of ours. And he apologized right away. That was a correction, immediately corrected. Immediately, immediately. I mean, but they have made, that gave him a little ammunition, which I wish I didn't have, that's all. And you're right. But that, well, that's like, I think, it's a, I think it's a bit like saying, um, didn't you wear that dress, though? Like, Zeke went out there, did, did reporting, oh, made a mistake, yeah. immediately corrected it, yeah. as a reporter should. Corrected it in several outlets and several oh, venues. No. I'm not being critical of him. All I'm saying is that they haven't found anything wrong with any of those other stories. Right. All but, the Russian connection stories, they haven't proven that the New York Times was wrong or the Wall Street Journal was wrong. No, but, but 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 so the stories that come out that are negative, he's able to just sort of. I mean, we see this now, right? Like, there, there was that story uh, with Amarosa and uh, April uh, Ryan. April Ryan, yeah. And the response from the White House, which you've seen several times now, is just fake news! Exclamation point! And that's the the yeah. whole response. And that is one of those things. It's just a it's a phrase that means if you're reading this story and you're a little bit uncomfortable and you're a Trump supporter, you're getting to the bottom of the story. You're like, I don't know about this. It's fake. Oh, you're like, oh, okay, it's fake news. Just, just, just an enemy reporter trying to take down the guy that we like. Screw it. Move on to something else. And like, that's just, that's so. That's part of their whole thing. Right. But it's not just Trump. So I, I mean, I think the White House has adopted this as their strategy, right? So yesterday, um, on Face, uh, Face the Nation, yep. Reince Priebus, John Dickerson. Should we take that seriously from him? Well, I think you should take it seriously. I think that the, the problem we've got is that we're talking about bogus stories, like the one in the New York Times that we've had constant contact with Russian officials. The next day, the Wall Street Journal had a story that uh, the intel community was not giving the president a full intelligence briefing. Both stories grossly inaccurate, uh, overstated, overblown, and it's total garbage. So, again, factually, he's not showing anything that would prove the story's wrong. But what he's saying is, because even if those stories, there was something wrong in those stories, Reince Priebus is saying that to justify the use of the phrase, enemy of the people. Right. I mean, it's, it's, as I was saying, I think he's, they're weaponizing this thing that we all have, which is confirmation bias. You know, you hold a belief, and you only want to believe news that confirms your belief, and you are skeptical of news that doesn't come in. That is a basic psychological ph phenomenon. But they have turned that into a political weapon to their advantage. And it, it, exactly as Evan is saying, they're saying just ignore anything that you don't like. Only listen to me. Only listen to Fox News. That is the only truth that exists in the universe. And if you, as long as you do that, everything will be fine. But it again gets to the, you know, it's just for the base. It's only for, for keeping those people in line. And we're, it's a recipe, I think, to have a, you know, a, a presidency where you're only speaking to 38% of the people or whatever his approval rating is at, at this particular moment. Is that all you need? I mean, that's the big question. This is the big question of the Trump presidency, because I think, you know, we can all look at back on it now. I mean, a lot of you are saying this is exactly what it was supposed to be like, et cetera. But there are tons of moments inside Trump's uh, ascension and then eventually his victory where a lot of people thought he was going to sort of make some sort of turn one way or the other, right? He has his populist. He has his populist uh, thing yeah. going for him. He could have focused on something else. Instead, he comes in and does focus on, on the things he focuses on, doesn't talk to other people. Um, this White House has basically determined you can do the 306 electoral vote strategy for your whole presidency. At least that's what we've seen so far. So the question is, is that what you're going to do? Do you want to just get those 70,000 votes in uh, Michigan or whatever it was for the rest of your time? Or do you want to try to do something different and expand it? That is, I think, the central question of the Trump presidency is does that base focus strategy, does winning the Republican primary every week make you president again? 
Because that's right. basically what he's doing. He's just winning the Republican primary every week. Right. Uh, by the way, I just before we move it, I just have to uh, give because we, we mentioned Fox News a couple of times. One of the guys that I respect the most in our profession is Chris Wallace, host of uh, Fox News Sunday. So Reince Priebus goes on Fox News Sunday after Face the Nation and tries again to trot out this enemy of the people. Uh, Chris Wallace won't have it. Here he is. You get about 10% coverage on the fact you had a very successful meeting with Bibi Netanyahu, the, the Prime Minister of the UK, the Prime Minister of Canada. We covered all of those uh, news you, conferences you live. Everybody Obama. did. Right, sure. Yeah, for about, yeah, right. But then as soon as it was over, the next 20 hours is all about Russian spies. But you don't no get to tell us along, what to do, how right? nothing's happening. You don't Give get to tell us break. what to do any more than, than Barack Obama did. Barack, Barack Obama whined about Fox News all the time. But I got to say, he never said that we were an enemy of the people. Mm. Good for Chris, right? You know, just yeah. Right in his face there. So that's the question. How should the media, I mean, people at the news conference Thursday, right, uh, I'm still trying to recover from that news conference, but um, uh, but a lot of people said afterwards that the media made a mistake in taking the bait. Uh, so how how should we sort of handle it? Just ignore those comments or fight back? Well, you, the, what what I'm it? sorry, what bait? The bait meaning Trump, you know, calling it fake news, and then people come, no, we're not fake. You know, we well, were, we're doing our job. We're reporting the truth. Well, Alex, Rather than just kind of taking it as this is just Trump, being Trump. Oh, right? I don't know. I mean, I, so Alex's colleague, Peter Alexander, did the right thing at the press conference. So Trump says this thing about the biggest victory ever, and then Peter Alexander says, says actually, we looked at your, uh, you know, we've, we did some Googling, and it turns out you're not the, you know, you do, you, you have nowhere near the biggest was, electoral vote. Yeah, that and, was a, and what happened was, was you saw the... great question. You saw the president sort of pause and then do this thing that was like, well, somebody just told me that. I mean, if you want to go away from that there moment... I was just given. We had a very, very big margin. I guess my question is, why should Americans trust you when you accuse the information they receive of being fake when you're providing information? That's well, I don't know. I was given that information. I was just given that I was information. Given, I've, actually, I've seen that information around. But it was a very substantial victory. Do you agree with that? You're the president. Okay, thank you. It just, yeah. He just backs down immediately. Yeah, yeah, right. If you want to go away from that moment thinking that Peter Alexander is the enemy of the people, then, you know, we're, we really, you know... Uh, thank you for your service. Please, please click on the ads. But you, you, you have no idea what you're doing with the journalism. So I mean, there's not really much I can say to the, other than that. Like that's that's an actual no, moment said, of journalism. You, you said this. These are the facts. Correct. And you cannot deny. Yeah. Uh, a week from today, we will have a new chair of the DNC. Uh, Alex, you have r reported that everybody at the DNC is sort of sick of this by now. Can't wait it. Can't wait for it to be over with. Right? I, yeah, I, I think anybody is paying any attention to this, uh, but especially the people involved in it. I mean, uh, you know, this race is February twenty-five, right February. in Atlanta. In Atlanta, right, and the you know this is a very unusual race. There's only four hundred and forty-seven people who actually get a vote. Those are the members of the DNC. So keep that in mind when you consider that this race has been going on since, uh, you know, November. Uh, Keith Ellison got in the, the week after the election, practically. And uh, they're all competing over these, you know, tiny handful of fewer than 500 votes. They've held 
public forums. They've they're uh, going to have a debate on CNN. They've had this four week. or five public forums. Four, I think, officially, right, for the DNC. Uh, yeah, and I think ten but, if you include the non-official, which is actually more uh, than there were debates during the Democratic presidential <laughs> primary. <laughs> Uh, so it's kind of absurd, and uh, you know, it's it, it's actually a li- I think a little bit of a disservice. I, I understand why the DNC tried to do this. They wanted to make it inclusive. They wanted to give people a chance to uh, you know consider the future of the party. But on the other hand, when you have these very public events, it gives the impression that this is something that the public actually has a say in when they don't. And I think that. Uh, could lead to people being, you know, very upset by the outcome if they don't realize the process and somebody who they don't like gets elected. Two main candidates, Tom Perez, Keith Ellison. There's a bit of a Hillary-Bernie uh, proxy war going on. Tom Perez was Obama's labor secretary, has all of the Obama people. Supported Hillary in the primary. Support Hillary in the primary, yep. But was, you know, is the kind of the most liberal member of the Obama cabinet. Uh, and then you have Keith Ellison, who was the second member of Congress to endorse Bernie Sanders, has the entire Bernie section of the party behind him. But again, you know, it's kind of the, one of the more uh, acceptable to the establishment guys from the Bernie wing. So they're, they're, they were well chosen from each of those camps. But another product of this thing going on for months is it's less let this kind of proxy war thing fester and, you know, let tensions get high and let things be said that maybe shouldn't have been said. And you're going to end up possibly with one of them winning and, you know, a big section of the party not feeling too happy about it. Does it make any difference? Well, that's a question I actually wanted to ask. Alex, I mean, Alex has been covering this so well. Like, he's, he's all the all the news I know about this, I don't know from reading his coverage. Do you think that this is going to actually create any major change inside the Democratic Party, whoever takes over this? this job. Do you, do you have that sense at all? Yeah, I mean, this is an important role, but I think it's uh, the, it's different from the role that we imagine it to be. And there's so much, like, Howard Dean gets a lot of credit for the 50-state strategy when he came in in 2005. Uh, and he's widely regarded as one of the best DNC chairs. Why'd he drop out? He th- Largely, he said, you know, I've done this before. It's time for a new generation of guys. He ended up, uh, he hasn't quite endorsed, but he's been very favorable of this guy, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of Indiana. He's a 35-year-old, South Bend, Indiana. Uh, 35-year-old guy. Howard Dean's whole thing is like, you know, my generation's time is done. We need to let these, these new guys come in. Uh, but he's given a lot of credit for this 50-state strategy, and he implemented it well. But that was, no matter who became chair then, there was going to be a 50-state strategy because the party had agreed on that. And that's exactly the same moment that we're in now. If you look at the actual platform of all of these DNC chair candidates, they're all basically the same. They're about rebuilding state parties, build, you know, redoing the 50-state strategy. There's kind of different tweaks around the edges. But So yes, the party will be very different than it was under... Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and President Obama, but I think it will be fairly similar regardless of who wins the the DNC chair because that role is about raising money, going on TV to say mean things about Donald Trump, and running the kind of organizational operation of the building, which is a lot of stuff that happens outside of the public eye. It's, you know, distributing money to state parties, building data, uh, and and that kind of stuff, which is now going to happen, you know, no matter who wins. The difference, I believe, well, first of all, I just want to point out, these 447 people, most of them have been on the DNC forever. Yeah. Uh, when I was state chair of California 20 years ago, uh, I was a member of the DNC. Okay. So last summer, I went to Minneapolis for that forum. I think you, oh, yeah. I know you were there, yeah. and I think you were too. 
with all when there were five candidates for for president at yeah. the time, the Democrats, and they all spoke. And at that forum, and I sat with the California delegation. This is 20 years later. They were all the same people <laughs> who were there when I was there 20 years ago. And they're still there now, right? And they're the ones who are electing the new chair. Right. So this is not a new breed of leadership on the DNC, right? And a lot of it, you're right, goes back. These are the people who were who thought, thought that Bernie Sanders was a a traitor, a heretic for running as a Democrat. There yeah. are people there who thought he should never have had permission to run, been allowed to run as a Democrat because he had not been a Democrat all his life. So this is the old moss-back establishment of the Democratic Party, for the most part, well, that's going to make make this choice. And I, I think the idea that they're going to, to your point, that they're going to accept change or really lead change, no matter who's elected, I don't think I don't think the the need for the Bernie Sanders shakeup of the Democratic Party is going to come from this gang. And, you know, Keith Ellison... Or, or whoever they elect. Even Keith Ellison. Right. Whom I support. Well, and, and, you know, he has done a very... Uh, he's taken a lot of effort to reach out to these people, recognizing that this is who the constituency is. It's not, you know, voters. It's these mm-hmm. graybacks of the, 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 by definition, Democratic <laughs> insiders, if you are a member of the DNC. Yeah. Uh, so he's gotten a lot of Hillary people to support him. He's, you know, <laughs> talked in a way about, I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to burn down the building and, you know, install socialists. Yeah. It'll, 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 it'll all be okay. What? what is different is who they're going to hire and, and bring in and the constituencies they represent. And that is really substantial. And that's where those people see a threat because they are the old guard. But Ellison's backed by Schumer. Yes. Who is the establishment establishment Total. of the establishment. Total. I mean, when I interviewed them, I went out and did a, a short vice package on kind of trying to connect the protests in the streets to what's going on inside the DNC race. Um, and if I you ask people about the word establishment, all of them freak out. I mean, I mean, it's like there. this is the job of running the establishment. And you're going to have to take that on. Like if you're Keith Ellison and you're the chair of the DNC, guess what, buddy? You're in the Democratic establishment. That's what happens. That's what it is. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Well, it's President's Day. That's the good news. The bad news is our president's name is Donald Trump. Uh, Yes, who has already made history as the least unqualified, the most unqualified, the most incompetent, and the most unhinged man ever to sit in the White House. I mean, he's only been there a month. He's been running around like a chicken with his head cut off, holding a lot of meetings, signing a lot of worthless piece of paper, making a lot of telephone calls, but he's actually accomplished nothing, and yet, reportedly, he's already bored with the White House. So, He's flown the coop to his uh, big resort, Mar-a-Lago, three weekends in a row to play golf. And he's already tired of pretending to govern. And so last Saturday, uh, he did what he likes to do best. He held a campaign rally, believe it or not. And just like all of his other campaign rallies, what he did was he bragged about how great he is. He attacked the media. He claimed again that he'd launched the biggest political movement in the history of the country, and he promised to make America great again. Now, uh, aside from the fact that it's a little early to be launching the 2020 presidential campaign, what we learned Saturday is that Donald Trump is not only incapable of governing, he's not interested in it. Yeah, 
He talks a good game. He makes a lot of promises. But it come, when it comes to actually boring down and getting things done, he doesn't give a shit. So the big question is, when will the American people finally have had enough? When will they realize that they elected an imposter? And how long before Republicans Congress in Congress finally realize that Donald Trump is not only dangerous for the country, he is dangerous for the Republican Party and do what they've got to do, which is dump him. No, I am more and more convinced that Donald Trump cannot last four years. It's time to start thinking about Plan B. This is The Bill Press Show.